Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this bonus episode of Politics on the Couch. Bonus there being a euphemism for made in a bit of a hurry. The reason being that... We wanted to talk about the US election before it happens, and it happens next Tuesday. Now, this being a podcast about politics and psychology, I wanted to talk in particular about the feeling of anticipation ahead of that election. We know there is going to be a seismic event. We know it's coming, it's in the diary, we know exactly when, but we don't know quite what the character of the quake will be, uh, what will be knocked down, what will be left standing. And that puts us, puts me anyway, in a peculiar position. Those of us outside the US, I mean, it's nowhere near, obviously, as stressful for us as it is for Americans who are caught up in this process. But it's strange, nonetheless. We are heavily invested uh, in this election, but we have no agency, no vote. We're in the story or we're caught up in the story, but it isn't really our drama. And I'm finding, I don't know about you, I'm finding that provokes a particular kind of anxiety, a queasiness. Uh, for those of us who follow it closely, the Trump-Biden contest is somehow both intimate and remote. It's all horribly familiar and weirdly alien at the same time. It's kind of possible to tune out. Uh, we have enough going on in the UK to worry about. It's not like there's an absence of stressful news on this side of the Atlantic. But the additional stress of knowing that there is a political convulsion happening in the US, the knowledge that the future of liberal democracy, basically, is in the balance, uh, that there is going to be this civilizational stress test next Tuesday, uh, it kind of gets into your head, it gets into my head, uh, even if you want to ignore it. It's like trying to relax, knowing there is a huge wasp in the room, uh, even when it falls silence. The silence is tense because... You know that the buzz is somehow still there, latent, waiting to start up again. Uh, and then there's the problem of information, uh, by which I don't mean getting good data. That can be a challenge. 
but there are reputable sources out there. The American media is still pretty good. But ultimately, none of that can scratch the itch because what we want to know is what's going to happen and we want to know now, but we can't because we have to wait. Uh, and the problem is I want Donald Trump to be defeated in case that wasn't obvious. Uh, and I want that so badly that I can't trust myself to judge the data dispassionately. We've talked on this podcast before a bit about cognitive biases, uh, our natural tendency to seek out what is comfortable in information and give that privilege over what might actually be true. Now, I have recently, specifically with regard to this election, I've caught myself in a lot of what psychologists call motivated reasoning. Motivated reasoning is... Uh, arranging the facts into a pseudo-rational structure that looks like a nice, neat, straight line uh, pointing to a conclusion, uh, but is actually a slide that you can whiz easily down towards your preferred opinion. Or motivated reasoning is the opposite. It's an uphill ramp that you build to make it harder for yourself to reach a conclusion that you'd rather not acknowledge. So when you come across a piece of evidence, uh, an opinion poll, for example, or a newspaper report, you unconsciously approach it from a different gradient or in a different stance, depending on how neatly it's going to fit into the patterns of your established belief. So you come at pleasing facts with a generous open arms, can I believe this attitude? And you find, sure, yeah, you can, you can believe that. But you meet unwelcome facts with a defensive uh, arms folded, slightly hostile state of mind. Must I believe this? Do I have to? Uh, and sure enough, no. Often you don't have to believe it. No one's going to make you believe it. And so you don't. Uh, and knowing very clearly, passionately, in fact, what I want to be true in this US election is making it really hard to manage the information flow. So does the undertow of dread, frankly, when I contemplate the prospect that the polls might just be wrong or that something else will happen uh, and Trump is going to end up with another term. Now, that rather long psychological preamble is all by way of introduction to the person I needed to speak to who I knew might be able to help me. Uh, I realised I needed a reliable analyst, not a psychoanalyst, although I probably need one of those too. Uh, I mean a political analyst who can help me put the whole thing in perspective. So I turned to Ben Smith. A media columnist on the New York Times, former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, former political writer for Politico, where he was pretty much embedded in the White House. Uh, and going back a bit further, uh, Ben is a former foreign correspondent in Latvia, uh, which is where I first met him, oh man, 20 years ago or so. That's a long time. Uh, he's a serious news guy. He's got nerves of steel. Uh, we hadn't spoken for a while, but I knew he'd be good for a no-nonsense take on the US election. Uh, and with all my anxiety dials in the red, I really needed to calibrate my expectations a bit. And I reckon Ben would give it to me straight. So I called him in New York. And after a bit of social chat, catching up, I asked him how actually worried I should be about next Tuesday. I mean, the scariest scenario for this country is... is is not a clean Trump victory. It's it's some kind of messy, ambiguous thing, um, which is totally plausible given how bad we are running elections. And by that you mean a situation where the, there's a, a kind of a clear mandate that he hasn't won. Enough people have turned out to say we don't want this man to be our president. Biden wins the popular vote easily. 
there, things are t up in the air in Pennsylvania there, and there's like violence around polling stations in Pennsylvania. I mean, I think that's a real possibility. And, and if it's really close, you never really get to the bottom of who won because the, the administration of elections in this country is just such a mess that if it's close, it's always going to be kind of a messy coin toss. It was messy in 2000, wasn't it? You know, sort of Gore, Bush, but that was a different, it just feels like a different planet where that was messy and, and there was sort of partisanship got into it. And there was a sense of, of legitimacy around sort of the institutions of democracy and that the Supreme Court's ruling was ultimately legitimate, even if you really didn't like it, and even if you thought it was partisan. And I think there's been a lot of kind of damage to that that legitimacy and the, the, or at least the you know what is legitimacy other than people's impression that things were legitimate i think that's you know there's been a lot of damage to that on both you know among people on also both trump supporters and his enemies well that is something that i i, I you sense from over here uh, and causes a lot of sort of anxiety in terms of more widely the health of a sort of a model of liberal western democracy but i can't tell you know you're much better placed than me to judge actually whether the sort of resilience of the institutions of American democracy have been sort of stressed beyond some elasticity point, whether even if Trump loses, there has been some corrosion of the protocols that is so profound, it's a different type of polity that we're going to end up with. I think it's not predictable. I think a lot depends on what actually happens. Like, you know, is it, I think, you know, to really do massive damage to American democracy, you need to get really unlucky. Things, you know, it would have to be close. I mean, you, you would take a bunch of specific bad things happening. But, you know, I think we have the capacity. We could, we could, we could pull it off. Yeah, it's pretty alarming when you see just things like the, you know, the, the scale of voter suppression, the long tail of gerrymandering, the way that the kind of mail-in ballots have been politicized, that you do, I mean, it's almost... Yeah, it's almost too easy to satirize this idea that somehow what was meant to be the beacon and the bastion of democracy looks a bit banana republic now. No, it mostly feels like a banana republic from the inside too, although it is, it's more sort of specifically complicated than I think people realize. I do think there are these, you know, real issues around Republicans at this point fairly openly in some states pushing for there to be fewer votes and fewer voters. Um, but right now, the, set, the state that everyone is looking at is Pennsylvania, which is governed by a Democratic governor, you know, for what it's worth, which means there isn't necessarily the sort of executive attempts at voter suppression there that you would see in, a, in some Republican states. And also, you know, it, it's, yeah, I mean, it, and there isn't, and there really isn't federal administration of elections or federal counting of votes, which is really which is really bizarre, actually, and, and different from other countries. We don't have a central voter commission. We have um, we have um, television stations. In terms of the institutions, and particularly, I'm fascinated by the Republican Party, which obviously there was this tension between the Republican establishment and Trumpism. And then when enough people saw that their interests were served by just sort of throwing themselves in with the Trump uh, culture and ethos, to what extent you know, because on this podcast, we like to talk about the psychology of politics, whether or not we're qualified to or is a different issue. But to what extent do you think there is a kind of a, a possibility of, of a, a cognitive separation now where the Republicans sort of regain some sense of their broader responsibilities to the Constitution? Or is the Republican Party now a wholly owned emotional, intellectual subsidiary of the Trump way of doing things now, even if he loses. 
I think, I, I mean, I think the Republican Party is now mostly a subsidiary of the Trump way of doing things. I mean, I think he sort of showed this path both toward more populist policymaking and toward a kind of social media trolling and victimhood and kind of dishonesty that a lot of Republican office holders have followed. Although, you know, you had, you've had people run around the country as the Donald Trump of this place or the Donald Trump of this place, and they haven't won. It's not totally clear that his magic sort of extends beyond himself. I mean, he's a really major television celebrity who Americans really felt like they knew before he started running. And that's not something that you, your average, you know, state councilman or city councilman can kind of magic up. Right. So is there a scenario where it, it is pretty obvious that he's lost? He obviously doesn't want to go. And a kind of what in the the equivalent in the Conservative Party they in this country, they talk about the men in grey suits, just go to him and go, you've had your fun, but actually it's over. And we, we need to save the party and, and the Constitution a bit. So you have to go now. Is that a, a feasible is that a scenario that you can envisage? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's a power is pretty distributed in this country, right? And I think, you know, it's I'm not really sure there are men in gray suits. There are governors, you know, who, who could either, the governor of Florida, if Florida is tight, could either try to pull it for Trump or at some point could concede that Trump had lost, at which point it becomes pretty hard for Trump to maintain that he's won. The Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, could either maintain that Trump had won or not. I mean, Trump doesn't have kind of a deep organizational hold on the American government. That raises this this question of how much of it is a kind of a cultural movement and how much of it is a, a was a kind of a weird convulsion that was specific to 2016 and other circumstances. And and the reason I I I'm fascinated one by this is partly because there was around 2016, 2017, a lot of liberal soul searching and angsting basically along the lines that the coastal establishments dropped the ball and they didn't really understand what was going on with the angry Trump voters and what was happening in the flyover states. And uh, you really had to sort of recognize the legitimate concerns and anger of the Trump voters, even if you didn't like basically the fascistic style of a Trump campaign. Uh, and that there was some kind of quasi-intellectual credibility to a kind of Bannonite nationalist view of things, that it was a real political movement. And to me now, it just actually looks like a bit of a heist. It's a kleptocracy and all that intellectualizing just now feels a little bit naive and that what really happened is the, the state was captured by bad people and you want the bad people out. You know, I think the answer is both. I think obviously there was a quality of a mass movement that at sort of beyond policy or, or economic grievance and motivated around kind of nostalgia and racism that Trump played really adeptly to. There's also obviously a kind of disenchantment with globalization that he played very adeptly to that both parties have to reckon with now. And I think you won't see Joe Biden come in and say, awesome, let's like restore all our trade ties with China and see how much manufacturing we can ship back, for instance, because it'll make your, you know, gadgets in Walmart cheaper. So I, I think it's a bit of both. You know, there are elements of Trumpism that were more consistent with Obama than than I think people are comfortable really saying a lot of his foreign policy, his sort of retreat from this from America being the global sort of hegemon was something that he really was very continuous with the Obama administration. Yeah, and, and complaining that Europe is free riding on, on American security, that's pretty old. Yeah. The difference is 
Trump does it in a kind of extorting way that makes it sound like these people haven't paid their Mar-a-Lago yeah. fees and the Obama administration spoke about it in terms of global security burden sharing. Yeah, and the, but then also the question of whether, I mean, you know, if Trump loses as badly as the polls show him losing now, you have a, essentially a minority coalition of non-college educated whites that is shrinking. And does the Republican Party continue to try, you know, basically resign itself to minority status as the party of a really embattled and angry and shrinking minority? Or does it try to rebuild a coalition? And I, I think there will be a fight inside the Republican Party over that. Is that a, a kind of a proto-nation within a nation being built? I mean, the, the, the boundaries between what what you can imagine being a sort of a rump, never surrender, we believe Trump won even if he lost movement, and basically a white supremacist or certainly white nationalist cultural movement seem to be pretty blurred. And the the danger that this is, it starts to look like a kind of, for want of a better word, a, a kind of a new confederacy of people who just aren't going to accept a liberal republic, seems to me, again, looking from the outside, a, a frighteningly feasible direction that could go in. Yeah, things go horribly wrong. Right. You could imagine Trump supporters not accepting the outcome of the elections. It's not as much a geographical divide as like a map of red and blue states would indicate. I think, though, I mean, I live in Brooklyn and about, you know, two or three blocks south of me, it becomes sort of majority Republican for a while. Texas is, you know, like 48 percent Democratic at this point. I mean, and a lot of the um, the biggest split, I mean, race is the biggest split, but gender is this deep, deep gap, right? You So you have, I think Trump is doing like 30 points worse with women than with men, which means there are a lot of couples that are split on you know, one one is voting for Trump and one is voting for for Biden, which I think cuts a little bit against the idea that you have these two nations, you know, detaching from one another. So you said a minute ago, actually, about how Trump had played some of these dynamics uh, uh, shrewdly or astutely, I think you said. Um, and again, just the, the psychology of the man is endlessly fascinating. Is that something that you think he is sort of conscious of being able to do that there is a, a an artful performance or is it just this kind of monstrous intuition that he does automatically you know is there is a kind of ogreish intelligence that isn't intelligence the way you or i would understand it that just makes him good at this shit or is there actual method in the madness i would say there's some of both he's not i mean he's not totally he's not unself-aware and he's a professional, you know, he has been doing this stuff for a long time and understands how the media works, understands in particular how the medium of television works, how, how you look on camera, how to stage a scene on camera, things like that. He under, like he really gets intellectually. Um, he also obviously has these sort of instincts that he follows that, you know, sometimes serve him well, sometimes serve him very poorly. I mean, he's right now going out and giving speeches that are very hard to understand if you aren't like all the way in his kind of character universe. That's very interesting. And that brings me actually to that really interesting column that you wrote this week, I think, that I want to talk to you about, because you, you, you mentioned in that a speech that he made in which he referred to Joe Biden in terms that you'd only really get, you'd only get the gag if you'd really been following the hard right blogosphere. Yeah. It's like one of those really obscure Simpsons jokes that reaches out to just like a handful of physics nerds and that's great for them, but no one else really gets it. Or like a callback to people who've been like watching, who've like watched every episode six yeah, times exactly. and they love it. But like, 
and where they read all the fan blogs and then like you have the character like making a joke about something that happened on a fan blog and like the super fans lose their minds but it just totally goes over the heads of everybody else yeah and if you look at what and biden's message is like i love america i'm gonna try to bring people together look at me hugging a steel worker like look at the love love moms you know it's like apple pie if you watch the ad that biden's running they could have you know they have don't mention Trump, a lot of them, and could have been made in 2008 or 1998 or whenever. Like there are just these very, very generic kind of yay America ads, which I'm, which they seem, you know, they are obviously believe that that is a majority message in America. Right. And that is very orthodox, old school. I mean, that's a Reagan campaign from 1980. And so pretty much in terms of the style, so very old school. And again, the, the, and the column you wrote, I'm going to ask you to praise it if you can, because I thought it was very interesting about the, compared to 2016, the return of the kind of gatekeeper function of mainstream media slightly rediscovering its power and authority to decide what isn't isn't news. You know, I was at BuzzFeed in 2016, and I think we we knew the New York Times and CNN were powerful, but we also had a lot of scale, and we in places like us on the internet, I think, kind of psyched the New York Times and CNN and those guys out a little bit into thinking they had no power left to control the agenda, and all they could do was comment on stuff happening on the internet like the rest of us. And I think you know, and I think after the election, there were some pretty clear assessments that showed that. The main place people were learning stuff that they trusted was from, you know, name brand mainstream media outlets, and that those outlets have retained really much more power to decide what the national narrative is, to set the national agenda than even they had realized. And I think what you saw in this last month, sometimes to a fault, was these old media gatekeepers were really ready for something like WikiLeaks to come in and try to seize that agenda set, setting power from them. And when this sort of bumbling attempt to drop this Biden, uh, opposition research on Biden through the New York Post happened in early, in mid-October, you know, like Twitter blocked the link to it. And the New York Times did a story saying that maybe it was Russian disinformation. And I don't really think it was those things, but they really, but they also, but it also wasn't that big a story. And appropriately, they just didn't play it like one. They didn't jump on it with any particular urgency. The wall, there was also an attempt to this attempt that the Trump people really thought would be the silver bullet to to give the Wall Street Journal an exclusive on some of these emails. That you know ultimately they read the emails and they didn't quite say what the Trump people said they would say, and so they didn't write the story. And I think you saw. And then when Trump arrives at this debate, assuming he's going to have all this ambient noise from the mainstream media about this terrible laptop. And in fact, he's talking about this laptop and nobody knows what the hell he's talking about. Yeah, a fascinating little detail. And that was the the, the way that Trump you know, trailed it himself saying, and I'm pretty sure the journal's got a cracking story. He wouldn't obviously phrase it like that, you know, coming up for you. And inside the journal, they're obviously going, you know what, you don't get to write our news list, man. You know, and I, I just know from a journalistic point of view how badly that will have played, the feeling that, Oh, hang on, you think you own us? Right, well, now you've made it much harder for us to run this story. And that sense that I think between 2016 and, and 2020, there has been this evolution of the way journalists see themselves as as potentially complicit in a game to to control the, the news agenda. And and But it's difficult, isn't it? Because if Trump tweets something absolutely outrageous, uh, your option, the sort of high-minded thing to do is to think, well, it's only a tweet. He's trolling the entire planet. Don't feed the trolls. 
But if everyone's talking about it, he's the president of the US, it's a story. You're also derelict in your journalistic responsibilities by not reporting the thing that everyone's talking about. So how do you navigate between not being complicit in the game and reporting the thing that literally is making the news? It's complicated. I mean, and I think that I think the main thing that we've learned here in the American media is that he really just tweets all sorts of nonsense all the time. And once in a while, it's crazy enough to merit a story like when he was promoting a theory that Osama bin Laden hadn't really been killed. And it was a body double in the Navy SEAL who reportedly killed bin Laden and who is a huge Trump supporter came out and said, no, actually, it was it was the real guy. I mean, if only for entertainment value, that was worth reporting. But I think mostly in the best reporting on Trump has been about stuff he's done, not stuff he says. And I think there has been a gradual shift toward like, oh, wow, these tweets like are getting really boring. And the important stories are happening in the immigration department, in the China trade office, in, you know, in Trump's tax returns, not in stuff he's just kind of saying to make noise. And I think he's I think he's lost some of that power to drive people's attention with tweets. I mean, it just kind of got old. Like, I think, you know, he's like, like The Apprentice. After four years, the ratings started going down. And is that true even with Fox? I mean, I had a very interesting conversation with one of the um, a sort of a veteran serious journalist on Fox, and it might surprise people listening to this podcast that there are still people on Fox, on the Fox staff who are you know, serious qualified journalists who take what they do seriously and don't really like to see themselves as agents of a of a hard right propaganda operation um uh who but describe the 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 commercial and political dynamics on on fox in terms of just the ratings driver that you could get from putting trump on air and how that created this tension between the people who editorially are trying to do news and the 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 business model that just made it so in their interests to be you know, a, a full-time Trumpathon. Yeah, I mean, Fox is this very strange animal that had been run by a sort of, you know, in a kind of dictatorial way by its founder, Roger Ailes, who worked for Rupert Murdoch. But I think people misunderstand Rupert Murdoch sometimes. I mean, he's not this iron-fisted figure pulling the strings, and his world is full of kind of chaos and feuding personalities and fiefdoms. Um, and Roger Ailes, who was generating an enormous amount of revenue and control and was very, at times, hostile to Murdoch, was basically left to his own devices um, and was a Republican operative running this network. He was forced out and disgraced in 2016. And bizarrely, they never really replaced him. And so these, you have a sort of semi-normal in some parts of it news operation that kind of works off a conservative script, but also has people, for instance, it's like elections unit. And this is, this is important, the people who are going to tell Fox viewers who won on election night are real straight shooters. The people who do their polling, pretty straight shooters. Um, but meanwhile, the pe- most of oh, virtually all of the Fox watching that happens, happens in the evening in primetime. And Tucker Carlson now is, you know, has, who's a kind of, if you want somebody who sort of embodies an ideology of Trumpism, that isn't, who isn't always slavishly loyal to Trump, it's, it's Tucker. And I think he has the highest rated cable news show in history this week. I mean, just, you know, ma- you know, million, five or six million people a night watching him, which on one hand is a lot. On the other hand, it's still cable news, still more people watching game shows. Um, but it is this, it's a really, it is a very powerful force in part because Trump spends, you know, Trump watches it all day. Right, exactly. So you have this weird situation where it doesn't matter how many people are watching it. What matters is there's one particular person who's probably watching it. And so people say, oh, no, I've heard these extraordinary stories to people from the administration or the spokespeople, or senior Republicans who go on Fox 
because that's the way they can sort of uh, disport themselves, perform to the president. Didn't Boris Johnson at some point come here to do an interview for Fox in the hopes of reaching Trump? Although I think as prime minister now, he can he probably can get Trump on the phone, or at least could outside of the election. Chris Hayes has a line that it's not clear whether this is state-run television or a TV-run state, which seems about right. Given that you've mentioned Boris Johnson, we all spend our time this of looking towards the Sun King, that is US politics, you know, from uh, out in the hinterlands of elsewhere in the world. And it's very easy, British politics is, is sort of neurologically obsessed with American politics for various reasons. But to what extent does anything that happens here cut through? I mean, outside of an election, yeah, I mean, it cuts through. And, and what does it look like? I mean, I think what Biden voters see is some kind of upscaled version of Donald Trump. I mean, I think British prime ministers have a pretty good record of figuring out how to get along with the American president across sort of apparent party lines. And Boris is obviously very nimble. And I'm sure Biden, I'm sure he and Biden have crossed paths in their lives. But, um, you know, I think there's this sort of generation of kind of Trumpy populists around the world who Trump really embraced. And, you know, that's kind of the kiss of death for Democrats. Like if Trump likes you, I think that, you know, I think that, you know, I'm sure Biden and Biden Biden is such a conventional old school politician. Biden will probably not do the sort of theatrical, playing theatrical domestic politics through foreign affairs um, the way Trump does and the way like Putin does. But I'm sure if like, you know, Biden were to keep Boris waiting and, you know, in a, alone in a waiting room with a slavering dog for a while, Biden supporters would love it. There's also an extent to which you have to repair the relationship with old allies and particularly the European Union. I mean, it was extraordinary to think that, that Trump... Yeah, but I think, Merkel, I, mean, I think Merkel is obviously going to be the most important European figure for Biden and Brexit just sort of necessarily makes that true. You know, I think he knows that he has leverage over Boris and that he can make Boris work really hard for a little love and whatever the US wants from the UK, I'm sure the UK will have to supply. You know, fixing bilateral US-UK trade post-Brexit it's just not as high on the American agenda as it is on the British agenda. And Biden has a lot of the different things to do. And I think there's a question of, you know, does Boris, how, where in line does Boris stand? Yeah, and I think there, there is definitely some anxiety about that on the UK side. I mean, there is this strange sort of symmetry where, you know, you had the referendum, Brexit referendum, June 2016, the Trump presidential election, November 2016. And so the the two projects, Brexit and Trump, are these sorts of monstrous, terrible twins that have sort of marauded through Western politics over the last four years. It's a bit more complicated than that. And now one of them, well, they both in a way come into their season finale. I mean, if you, you, you were scripting it, it's almost too neat, isn't it? You've got this sort of final stage of uh, EU, UK, free trade association talks. You've got the US presidential election. It, the, the, I wonder to what extent we could get to, and because on this podcast, we always try to be a bit optimistic at, towards the end, uh, to what extent we could get to 2021 and just think that was a weird kind of long bout of sort of geopolitical flatulence that from something we had that didn't agree with us but actually kind of better out than in. And now we can move on with just being modern democracies. That's my kind of best case scenario for, for... I mean, that's extremely optimistic. I mean, I do think that, I mean, in the US, one of the things that is really happening is that you're sort of, it's becoming a multiracial democracy and you're sort of seeing the kind of rising neurosis of the old majority, right? But I'm not sure that that then just goes away and people kind of accept defeat and move on. 
But at the same time, you know, certainly one way to read this is that it it's sort of a freak out and backlash at an, you know about the an inevitable future that it remains inevitable and and that you can't really postpone that long. By which you mean that there is the sort of the the anger and the rage that that was the real the sort of gasoline in the tank of Trumpism is a lashing out in craving of a of a of a whole economic model, the manufacturing jobs, all the rest of it, the sort of rust belt image, nostalgia for the 1950s idea, uh, which is mostly about a kind of a white middle class, uh, uh, all of that, it's just not coming back. And that, that weaponized nostalgia, it, it ultimately, it, there aren't enough people who are t- too wedded to it to win another election the way that Trump won in 2016. Yeah, I mean, the core sort of insecurity of the Trump movement, the sort of you know resentment comes from white, mostly non-college educated voters who I think, you know, for much of American history saw themselves as the people who defined American identity and are now a minority. It's a sort of uncomfortable transition. And I think, you know, but the point is that they're a minority and, and each election year will be a smaller minority. Gives us an opportunity to talk a little bit about the left because that Biden is pretty ancien regime in that sense. I mean, he's a Democrat, but he's not Bernie, is he? And so this idea that there are going to be a lot of people who actually on the left are holding their noses and voting for Joe Biden, because it's you just have to, you know, it was in the French presidential election, where it was Chirac versus Le Pen, you know, you take the crook over the fascist, it's not quite that bad. But there will certainly be people uh, on the left who are absolutely ready to feel betrayed by a Biden centrist project. Yes, I mean, certainly there's a progressive wing of the party whose motto at this point is settle for Biden. And who, um, you know, and who are, you know, I I think betrayed is the wrong word, actually, because they don't actually think he's one of them. and, And he's never pretended to be. And I think it's actually in some ways a healthier relationship than Obama. He is what he seems to be. He's actually more left wing than he seems to be. He's a guy who's always been on the left of the Democratic Party sort of the center left of it, the kind of establishment left, who's more or less blown where the wind was um, and not a politician of deep principle. And I think right now he's keyed up to push through the largest stimulus package in the history of American economics. And, you know, that's sort of priority number one. And I think there will be a lot of common ground with the sort of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's of the world. I mean, younger voters are, you know, who who are sort of the face of the new left, you know, are pretty, are not that excited about Joe Biden. But in fact, the kind of, you know, the bet he made was that old people vote more and he's doing really well with really old people. And he's doing really well with sort of middle-aged moms in the suburbs who are the key swing voters. And like, that's his real constituency. That's sort of, I mean, it's kind of the resistance rather than the left was the bet he made. You know, suburban moderate women who are appalled by Donald Trump. And those are the people he's going to be governing for not, you know, people in Brooklyn, I think. That's kind of reassuring because that suggests that the actual facts about Donald Trump's character have actually cut through to the people who, for whom it matters because there was a feeling that sometimes it wasn't. They were just in filter bubbles and not, not getting the truth about who Trump really is. I mean, he's been unpopular every moment. and He barely touched 50% ever and and... But I don't think it's his character. I think it's his handling of COVID. I mean, I think, you know, I just think that's, it's, it's, it's not that complicated. He's the incumbent. The thing is a referendum on his handling of this obviously central issue. He really screwed it up and, and, and kind of did a bizarre, I mean, just the whole thing was a disaster and he's going to be punished for it at the polls. So I'm not sure 
it's and, and Biden is, is is very focused on talking to people who hadn't made up, you know, on to swing voters. He's it's not focused on this idea that you can pull more young people, for instance. He's focused on persuading people who voted Donald Trump to change sides. And according to the polls, that's been very effective. Okay, you sound quite confident, which always makes me nervous. I didn't at the beginning of this chat, I didn't manage to draw you on how how queasy you are. You're talking still very much from the head. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just read the same polls as every other idiot. Like it sure, you know, it looks like Biden's gonna win in the polls, but could be wrong. And, you know, I would pay a lot of attention to Pennsylvania. Okay, what time are we gonna get Pennsylvania? How what, what, how late should I be staying up or how early should I set my alarm clock? To, to know that. Can I, can I stay up drink, all night drinking or do I have to start drinking really early? That's What's the time difference now? Is it six hours, five, five hours, hours? More or less. Um, yeah, I think if you, um, I mean, I would go to sleep and wake up early, basically. Okay. But I think the, uh, you know, the best Biden scenarios, polls close in Florida around eight. I think they close in Texas, maybe at nine. If, I mean, if Biden were to win those states convincingly, they're states that count very fast and won't have a lot of absentee ballots out. You know, if if they call Florida and Texas, you know, you could go to bed at one one two in the morning. Okay, so Florida is the Basildon of, of this U.S. Florida, Texas, Georgia, those are states Trump's absolutely has to win. Um, and then then the other direction is it's close in Pennsylvania. This thing could go on for another three weeks. They 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 have votes that will be trickling in at least to election day and maybe later. They have no experience counting late ballots. They won't start counting until election day. And and they're not very good at it. And so that's, and there's going to be more than they can possibly imagine. And that's the real sort of, and they're just going to be kind of nice, well-intentioned senior citizens, volunteers sitting in fluorescently lit basements, counting ballots for weeks. I just think the whole press corps must be experiencing certainly in this country you know the 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 westminster lobby you know between 2016 the referendum and 2019 the the general election it, it you know i don't want to make light of of serious military trauma that people have so i'm not going to uh, stress the metaphor too much but it, it there was this feeling that people have been in the kind of info war trenches uh, and everyone was tired and emotionally overwrought now <clears throat> we're commentators it's not quite like newsbeat reporting but yeah not speaking personally but generally of, of the industry there, there must be some sense also that everyone's just feeling overwrought and beaten up by this whole process yeah and our audiences most of all and i, I mean i actually think if trump wins also everybody goes home you know i think there's some world where if trump in some surprise world where trump wins in a landslide I'm just not sure the there's the energy left for another wave of outrage. That's a really bleak scenario, isn't it? So everyone just that's the kind of <laughs> really having to mine deep for the optimism here now. So that somehow the polls that it's unusual for the polls to be that wrong. I mean, but that would, I mean that would be yeah that's would be wildly unlikely. Okay, so so there's people listening to this uh, and they're really unhappy about the prospects of next Tuesday because they just don't know what's going to happen. And you, Ben Smith. Uh, are now going to explain to them that everything ultimately is going to be okay. Oh, I'm definitely not going to say that. Um, <laughs> I, I do, you know, I do, I think that I guess, and I think this actually isn't all that encouraging. But the only outcome that you could possibly know when you go to bed in the UK is a sweeping Biden victory. I think that's totally possible. 
there's a world where Georgia, Florida, North Carolina go for Biden convincingly, and the night is over very early. And they, and maybe and maybe the television networks won't formally call it because they're waiting for polls to close in California, but it's over. Um, and then and then yes, and then there are scenarios where it goes all night or all month. I remember when having this conversation when we all those years ago uh, when we were in Riga about how there was this the the kind of what we now know is the kind of Borat phenomenon of people liking to report on the US as if it's just the weirdest place. You know, that's particularly when you have things like the Tiger King that did so well here. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you caught any of that, but yeah, that pe people love that stuff here because it, it it allows us to think that this is just it's the most perverse, weird. It's like a dystopian Disneyland of cultural perversion. Uh, and I remember you saying that that feels like a little bit of a, there's a bit too much emphasis on that in Europe out of a kind of slight resentment of, of, of being the, the kind of left behind old world that likes to be a bit sneery and, 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 and snooty about American culture. Yeah. I mean, I think you guys have your problems, but no, this is, I mean, certainly this period has brought out every terrible that has sort of confirmed every terrible fear Americans had about themselves. So I think you're, in, I think you're entitled to a certain amount of schadenfreude and sort of just general enjoyment of this whole thing. Oh, if only it could be enjoyable. Uh, we better, it's so far, far from being enjoyable, but we, we, we better leave it there. Um, we can, but thank you, Ben, so much for taking time out of, of this. Yeah. It's good to talk to you guys. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. We chatted a bit more after that, but then Ben got a work call that he had to take. The time difference, of course, meant that while I was kicking back in the evening, it was the middle of the afternoon for him, and he's a political journalist, and there's an election on. So he's a busy guy. And thanks, Ben, again, for taking the time to talk to the podcast. That conversation left me a bit reassured, I think. It certainly helped clarify a few things in my mind which is always a bonus from this podcast. It's not the only reason I do it, but it's one of the reasons why we do it. Uh, I hope I'm not alone in, in getting that bonus from it. Uh, we're planning to be back in America pretty soon with a really great guest, uh, someone with some world-class psychological and political insight. Uh, so look out for that. Do please spread the word too. Thank you for listening. Thanks, producer Phil, for keeping the whole show on the road. Have a great weekend, everyone. And, well, fingers crossed for next Tuesday. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.